Last week, we told you about the moment when people first saw Alibaba's IPO filing. The numbers were even more impressive than anyone expected. Can it set up years of success? But what happens when the story goes the other way? Well, you get WeWork. The company, which once sought to be the next big IPO, instead became a cautionary tale for startups. It took a failed IPO to actually learn the lesson. I'm Alex Yule. Welcome to the Readback from Barron's. This season, we're winding back the clock and unraveling the stories of the companies behind the biggest and most fascinating IPOs to answer a key question. How do we put a price on innovation? Today on the show, WeWork spent years pushing the envelope in the real estate market. Eventually, it pushed too far. It's been hard to miss the WeWork story over the last two years. The company's rise and fall has already been memorialized in documentaries, books, and upcoming streaming projects. When you're talking about startups and IPOs, it's impossible to avoid the topic. In interviewing people for this season of The Readback, it came up all the time. From Renaissance Capital founder Kathleen Smith, It wasn't that long ago, my gosh, that we had the WeWork fiasco, because when investors opened that book, they said, wow, this is not anything that we thought. To Barron's reporter, Al Root. So WeWork is like, we have this platform. Wait a second, don't you just like rent office space? No, 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 we don't rent office space. To Wall Street analyst, Randy Connick. I think WeWork was really probably, probably that was the change. WeWork caused a chain reaction in the broader market for private companies. Even when we weren't talking about WeWork, we were talking about WeWork. That's how all-encompassing the company's story became in the world of IPOs. And while the story is well-known by now, what's still less obvious is just how big a role a 350-page document had in the company's undoing. We're referring to WeWork's S-1 filing, that SEC form we spent so much time talking about on the readback this season. It's effectively the bridge to going public, the moment when a company puts everything on paper for the first time for the entire world to see. And in the case of WeWork, the company had a lot to share, some of which it would come to regret. WeWork just unveiling its IPO filing literally moments ago. This one we've all been waiting for. After disrupting real estate with bold promises, WeWork took the same approach to its S1. The usually staid filing was full of goofy mantras, flowcharts, and really bad numbers. There's a lot of unusual, call them maybe quirks within this prospectus. Some could be glaring conflict of interest, some other ones that, like I said, are a little bit smaller, but still raise questions as to- WeWork could no longer paper over its outlandish ways. It turns out you can't really disrupt government-mandated public filings. After years of building hype, the filing basically undid everything in a matter of days. Office-based startup WeWork has officially postponed a plan to go public. In his book, Billion Dollar Loser, about the rise and fall of WeWork, Reeves Wideman calls it, quote, the most humiliating attempt at a public offering in American business history. I asked him if he was exaggerating. I think in terms of the pure effect on the company and the company's reputation, nothing had happened like this. Here's how WeWork opened their S-1 filing. We dedicate this to the energy of we, greater than any of us, but inside each of us. The quirks of the filing, family members on the payroll, and a book-like dedication were quickly noticed by social media users. First, the financial types. Huge companies that have stayed private for a decade have been a reality check for Silicon Valley. 
and then the WeWork customers, and then pretty much everyone else. What's there? Just beanbag furniture and, and some, some uh, fixed leases on space that'll be a challenge and a financial downturn? I don't get it. There's plenty of competitive uh, movement out You've there. probably noticed a pattern by now. Most of the companies we've talked about in our IPO season have been technology companies. Even if they were retailers, technology shaped the brand. After all, technology is a popular way to build a business these days, and it certainly increases your chances of getting noticed by investors. It's no coincidence that the five largest companies in the U.S., by far, are technology leaders. WeWork always wanted some of that tech glow, and for years it worked, helping to pull in some of Silicon Valley's most famous venture capital investors. Technology is at the center of our global platform, the company said in its IPO. WeWork uses the word platform another 169 times in its S1 filing. But WeWork wasn't really a tech company by any traditional standards. The company leased space in buildings, gussied it up, and then rented the space back to smaller tenants. And even that wasn't all that unique an idea. Coworking had existed, flexible office space providers had existed, but the business was what it was, and it was making money. It had a lot of revenue, unlike a lot of companies that have gone public and were going public throughout the 2010s. So that was one appeal of the company. And then the other appeal was with the promise of what it could be. WeWork did have one unique ingredient, though. Founder Adam Newman, who convinced tenants, landlords, and investors that he had something special in mind. We like to say this is for the we generation. Anybody that wants to be part of something greater than themselves, that understands that bringing meaning and intention into work and bringing those two things together is a member of the we generation. And the money tends to follow. And this is where Adam Newman really came in and was a very, very good salesman for the idea that WeWork was going to be more than a real estate company, that it was going to somehow sort of change the economics of the real estate business. And I don't think you can separate WeWork from the era in which it existed, which was this decade after the financial crisis, when a lot of big new startups were starting. That era was one in which private money was flowing as freely as tap water, and everyone was looking for the next Google, this time built around the sharing economy and smartphones, which venture capitalists believed held the next round of transformative companies. In certain ways, there wasn't a bigger bet out there than disrupting real estate. It's an industry that's so big, it's really impossible to put a number on it, but a trillion dollars is one way to look at it, at least. And so I think just the appeal that maybe there was a way, if you had a person like Adam, who was willing to sort of do things completely differently and go against conventional wisdom, and if you put enough money into it, and that was the thesis of Masasan and SoftBank. Reeves mentioned SoftBank specifically because the company represented a unique kind of venture capital firm. SoftBank itself was a Japanese telecom company, but its CEO, Masayoshi-san, had always been a visionary with a very long-term view. You had a meeting with a man, and as I understand the story, you went in, and in one hour, you convinced him to invest $45 billion. No, no. 45 minutes, $45 billion. Okay, sorry. Okay, I apologize. In 2017, Masayoshi-san created a venture capital arm of his company called the Vision Fund, which sought to invest in the most disruptive companies before they reached public markets. The SoftBank Vision Fund ultimately raised $100 billion, making it the largest VC vehicle ever created. 
and Masa, as he was known, put it all to use. But it turns out it's hard to spend $100 billion, and at times the Vision Fund seemed to be reaching with its deals. That's how it ended up leading multi-billion dollar fundraising rounds. It was the closest thing markets have seen to money growing on trees. In January 2019, nine months before WeWork's failed IPO, SoftBank invested $6 billion in the company, giving WeWork a valuation of $47 billion. It would prove to be WeWork's peak. These investors knew all of the reasons to be skeptical, and yet at each point, WeWork kept getting bigger and bigger. More smart people kept putting money into it, and so I think there was this level of people just being willing to believe that they were going to get there. And a lot of those early investors did make money. You know, they cashed out along the way as more and more people put in. SoftBank was the one holding the bag when the IPO went south. Over the coming year, SoftBank would be forced to formally acknowledge or write down billions of dollars worth of losses related to WeWork. And it was arguably all because of WeWork's unusual IPO filing. Why did the release of the S1 and the attempt to go public suddenly reveal what the company actually was? I think there were a few things. One, to those who'd been following the company in the real estate industry, many of them thought, you know, maybe Adam has figured something out that we don't. Maybe he does have a secret sauce. And, you know, as a private company, they didn't have to release their numbers in any real way. And so this was the first time that people got to look at the numbers. And in terms of the core business, it's not that WeWork wasn't making money. It was making a lot of money. It was also losing a lot of money. But it was just clear that they hadn't actually figured out something that would justify the valuation they were getting. So it was sort of a moment when the curtain was lifted and everyone could see what was going on backstage and realize that it wasn't all that different. WeWork's filing ended up being a goldmine for financial publications. But the story quickly transcended the business pages. I think the public saw that and saw a lot of this for the first time and found out about Adam Newman for the first time. And the news cycle just got so out of control that I, I really think in this case, that led a lot to sort of the death spiral. The numbers weren't great, but you could tell a story. You could tell the story of we're, we're growing and we're trending in a direction and this will work. And there were people, as I, I remember talking to sort of analysts at the time who understood that there were problems. But when you add to that the conflicts of interest, the ways in which truthfully, and then in some ways just perception, this was a company that had enriched Adam Newman and his friends and family. And then you add on that just all the weird stuff. I think it just became too much to bear. I think if you had taken one of those out, like, yeah, you you might have had a different scenario. And, and the easiest one would have been, hey, maybe we don't need these pictures. And maybe we don't need to dedicate this to the energy of we. I do think there was an alternate history, but it was just too much bad news to deal with. Ultimately, investors just didn't have the stomach for a huge money losing company with a fanciful way of thinking about financials, disclosures and IPOs. Not in late 2019, at least when the IPO market had already been cooling. Remember, this was already the year that had featured the disappointing debuts of sharing economy stalwarts Uber and Lyft. WeWork's failed IPO was the final straw. The IPO market had finally drawn a line in the sand. The numbers had to make some sense. And WeWork just couldn't make its case. I don't want WeWork. I mean, I don't want WeWork at any price. There are certain deals that come 
and they could just really just take the air out of any market. It's too late. You can't stuff sure. it all back in the box with this one. I mean, no, you can try and change everything I mean, why after can't the fact. just say, hey, you know what? We're awful, and we're just going to wait till we're good again. So who gets the blame for WeWork's collapse and the collateral damage it left behind? In some ways, this was all a predictable result of private companies taking more and more money before they ever had approved themselves to the broader public. It's a trend enabled by flush venture capitalists and taken to a whole other level by SoftBank. Venture capital should be for taking risky bets that can produce great outcomes. What we've seen in the last few years, really in the last half decade, and really, frankly, a lot of it driven by this one player, SoftBank, are these huge amounts of money, billions of dollars invested into these companies that allow them to fund their growth. Amazon raised one round of venture capital, and then it went public. WeWork, I'm, I, I'm, I'm losing track, but it's seven or eight rounds of venture capital that they attempted to raise and did raise. So it's just become a sort of different thing where these companies that stay private, that take this money, that don't really have to worry about a balance sheet, they're kind of warping the way that the system has worked. And I think there are some consequences to that that aren't always great. It's meant a lack of transparency at best, an unethical or even illicit behavior at worst. It's no coincidence that both Uber and WeWork's founding teams were ultimately pushed out as the companies came under greater scrutiny from the public. Founders who spent years getting whatever they wanted, with no pushback, face new pressures once IPOs and public money start to enter the picture. Is your sense that Wall Street and maybe venture capital took any real lessons out of the WeWork experience? I would love to say that they did, and I think Unfortunately, the answer is no. A lot of people made money on WeWork, especially early investors. I think investors are still going to be willing to take risks on companies, even when they see red flags, if they think there's a way for them to make a buck on it. So I think in the broad strokes, I'm not sure that people learned much of anything. Like, Hopefully now there will be some attempt to kind of rein in founders who are eccentric, uh, to say the least. But I think what we've seen in the IPO market and the economy in general, amazingly, is, is that it sort of feels like it's business as usual. And sure enough, the WeWork story isn't over. Just this March, the company announced it would be going public after all, via a special purpose acquisition company, or SPAC. We'll talk about that more next week on The Readback. Thanks for listening to The Readback. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also email us at thereadback at barons.com. Thanks to Reeds Weideman, Kathleen Smith, Al Root, and Randy Connick. For more coverage on WeWork, you can check out barons.com. And for even more, don't miss Reeves' book, Billion Dollar Loser. I'm Alex Ewell. The Readback is produced by Meta Lutzoft and Katie Ferguson. Melissa Haggerty is our executive producer. Next week on the show, why alternatives to IPOs are more popular than ever. There's so many of these private companies that may not be able to get through the scrutiny of the IPO process, but they now they have this outlet in the SPAC vehicle. 
when you have better quality companies merging with facts that takes some of the stigma off of it and makes it considered by a broader range of companies as an alternative to the IPO. We'll be back next week.